Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 16. For those of you joining us on the live stream, we're glad that you're here with us as well. This is God's word. May we hear it and receive it as such. 2 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom Yahweh and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, call Hushai, the archite, also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus as has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, who Whoever hears of that fall will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. 
For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he's to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And all of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For Yahweh had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that Yahweh might bring harm upon Absalom. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we have just sung our request to you that you would give us eyes that we would see, that you would give us ears that we might hear. Lord, we also ask that you would give us hearts moldable in the image of Christ, that you would chip away the stench of our crusted calluses and that you would draw us into and give us the power of confidence that you are orchestrating all that we see and hear, that we would have the certainty of knowing that you are with your people and that your promises are yea and amen. Lord, it is in this hope that we pray and all God's people agree. Yay and amen. Every once in a while, I think myself a movie director. It doesn't last long. You need fear not. Nobody would hire me anyway. But every once in a while, I think, what would I title this episode? If I was writing a five-act play, what would this act be called? Today, the episode before us would be entitled The Betrayer. And it would be a play on words, because in this, the end of 16 and moving into 17, there's more than one betrayer. The betrayer will himself be betrayed, and ultimately all betrayers will give an account against the one to whom they have betrayed. In other words, opposition to God is folly. Opposition to God is folly. And usually we jump right into the narrative and we get going and we figure out who and what and where and how, sometimes even why. And then at the end, I tell you what the main threads are, what the significant points are. Well, today I'm going to invert that. Here's the two theological witnesses of this text. First, even when God's sovereignty appears absent, we must take heart because hidden sovereignty is still reigning sovereignty. Hidden sovereignty is still reigning sovereignty. And second, Ahithophel's plans and actions, these acts of treachery, they only execute Yahweh's word. 
for all his brilliance, for all his insight, for all his cunning and wisdom and planning, every move he makes in defiance of God brings about God's promised fulfillment. You're that secure in the plan of God that even the appearance of enemy victories does nothing but bring forward God's promised victories and vindications. Amen? So, let's jump into the betrayer and the betrayer's plans. We see here, verse 15, that Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, they have entered Jerusalem. Remember, David has exiled himself for the protection of the city, for the protection of the people of the city. In his kindness, he has walked away so that the conflict can be handled in an otherwise manner. The siege of Jerusalem is what he does not want. So you have David going out and you have Absalom coming in. Now that's not just true in a physical sense, it's also true in a political sense. David's kingship is on the run and Absalom's kingship is being established. That's what's happening in verse 15. In 16, we see when Hushai the archite, David's friend, remember, this is almost like an office. It's the office of David's friend. And Absalom knows this. And that's at the center of their conversation. Watch how it unfolds. Absalom, this, you know, insurgent king, says to Hushai, I mean, sorry, Hushai approaches Absalom and says, Long live the king. Long live the king. In other words, it's like this doubled mini oath. And it appears that Hushai is swearing loyalty to Absalom. And Absalom is not sure that that's exactly what he intends to do. So Absalom calls on it. Is your loyalty to your friend, is this... This action of, of double mini oath to me, is that your loyalty? Are, are you so fickle that the second I take power, you abandon the one to whom you were loyal? In other words, Absalom is skeptical and speaks that skepticism to Hushai. Why didn't you go with your friend? You're David's friend. You're the friend of David. Everybody knows it. I know it. Why are you here? So what's Hushai supposed to say? What's he supposed to say? I mean, you're right. I was loyal to David. <clears throat> Still am. Uh, but like that doesn't get him behind enemy lines, right? But if you watch everything that Hushai says carefully, like a defiant teenager... Their words seem true, but their motives and their conclusions are false. You ever had these kind of moments where you're like, well, technically, inwardly, inner monologue, technically, and then outer monologue speaks? That's what's happening here. So 
David has instructed the friend of David to infiltrate. Remember, David is setting up a spy network on the run, and Hushai plays an essential part to this information gathering and distributing network. Why didn't you go with your friend? That's Absalom's question. Listen to Hushai's answer. So slippery and brilliant. Hushai says to Absalom, no. Notice he got asked a why question. And he answers, no. Maybe teenager was too high. This is more like a four-year-old. Happy birthday, Calvin. Hushai says to Absalom, no. For whom Yahweh and this people and all the men of Israel, it's a threefold basis, have chosen his I will be. And with him, I love this, I will what? Yeah. And again, whom should I serve? Now, this is awesome. Should it not be his son as I have served your father, so I will serve you, at least appear to, as far as you know. You see the slippery? Hey, I was a great servant to your father. You question my loyalty? My loyalty? Let me show you what I've done. (laughs) He's questioning motive, and he's giving him history. Notice they're never having the same conversation. They appear to have the same conversation, but Hushai is committed to the things that Absalom is afraid he's committed to, and yet, by dullness or blindness, Hushai wins support. This is also a taste for the listener, for the reader, to understand Hushai is going to be effective in this role that he's been given, right? Because if he can get behind the first examination, the rest is going to be easier and easier and easier. This is the way trust works. So here's Hushai, and he's in, right? I I did good things for your father. I'm going to do good things for you. Who else should I serve? Your father. Then Absalom says to Ahithophel, It's almost as if the the questioning of Hushai's loyalty is now over, right? Cut, scene, move to the next. So then Absalom says to Ahithophel, all right, bro, give me your counsel. What are we going to do? Notice Absalom, and, and this is a true characteristic for Saul. They have no original plans, they, they, they rely on the wisdom and cunning of others for the elements that they do not understand or know. Give your counsel, what should we do? Verse 21, Ahithophel says to Absalom, go into your father's concubines. Wait, what? We, what? Listen to the bravado and cruelty of Ahithophel's initial plan. If you are willing to take your father's throne, take his wives and women as well. Now, wow. Heavy? 
I mean, this went from interesting to whoa. And every Israelite would feel as we feel right now times a thousand. Right? Okay, I know you're taking your dad's throne, and that means you're going to get his palace. And some of his workers, I mean, all that's pretty reasonable. You, you're, whoa. Yeah. Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left behind to keep the house. And all Israel, you think the gossip would go forward? <laughs> yeah. All Israel will hear that you have made yourself stink. We're, we polite it up with a stench. But literally, it's stink. You're going to be so odious as a king that no one is going to dare oppose you. Because if you're willing to do this, there's probably no limit to what else you might do. So Ahithophel is literally telling Absalom to establish an irrevocable, 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 I love you guys, an irrevocable beginning to his reign. And in some senses, possession of the king's harem is a title to the throne. You know, we, we like to say in our culture, nine-tenths of the law comes down to what? Possession. So if you're willing to possess your father's throne and his house and his workers, take possession of his women too. And then who could say you aren't king? Who could say it? And in Ahithophel's mind, this action will strengthen the resolve of these treacherous rebels. Did you catch that? If you're willing to be this smelly, all the hands of all those who are with you will be strengthened. This is the idea of resolve. If you've resolved to begin here, everybody knows nobody's playing around. This is for blood. So what do they do? Verse 22, they pitch a tent for Absalom on the roof. In other words, they make a portable bedroom on the palace roof for all to see. And then we're told Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of, in the sight of all Israel. Once again, unholy men Violating, abusing, helpless women for their own purposes, for their own pleasures, for their own evil gain. I want to take us back so that we can remember while, why and how and what how did we get here? Why is this happening? Upon what is this based? Go all the way back and remember what God 
promised in judgment to David. We've talked about this at the beginning of every week since, but not this explicitly. Let's go all the way back and hear verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now therefore, this is God speaking through his prophet to David. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, this is God speaking, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil, meaning trouble, against you out of your own house. We've seen that very much on display. And I will take your wives, plural, before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives. Where? Where? One more time. In the sight of this son. A portable tent pretty much establishes the legitimacy and depth of this promised judgment. Verse 12 is the why. For David did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. What you have done in secret, I will produce publicly. You wanted it in private, I'm going to escalate that to display its evil Publicly. When you think about the phrase, the promises of God, how happy does it make you? Don't we generally and almost exclusively think about the promises of God in their benevolence? in their goodness, in their positive elements. We don't want to use the phrase, the promises of God, when it comes to warnings, when it comes to judgments, right? We want to talk about the benevolent elements, but we never want to think of the same God who gives benevolence also reserves malevolence, vengeance, justice. Be careful how you use. I didn't say if you use. How you use that phrase, the promises of God, to think through not just what good is going to unfold for you, but also what judgments are promised. If you had asked David 
before he even looked upon Bathsheba, that all of this would unfold. Would he stop? I like to think he would stop, because I would like to think I would stop. Sometimes the ignorance of the end reality of those evils leads me to not hold them in high esteem. Just a little indulgence, right? Just a little indulgence. Is it ever just a little indulgence? Does your little indulgence ever produce good for you? Lasting good for you? This is vile. And this is consequence. And this was promised. Is there injustice here? That's a toughie, isn't it? The women do not receive justice. They do not receive mercy. They receive injustice. Is that injustice from God? Is God the author of this sin? He prophesied it. Did he author it? No. God never authors evil. He's never culpable for our sin. He takes his hands off and leaves us to our thirsts and depravities, and then he cleans up the consequences, sometimes even in real time, sometimes on the day of judgment. So yes, there is injustice here, but not by God. God promises this unfolding justice, and he does so far more specifically than we understood when it was given, yes? It sounds so general in chapter 12, and it's so odiously specific in chapter 16. So that's the first plan that Ahithophel offers Absalom and his rule. And then there's an assessment given about the brilliance neglecting the evil, of this plan. Notice verse 23. In those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted what? The word of God. The word of God? Yes. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed. Not truthful, but esteemed. Revered. Even David reveres Ahithophel's plan, his cunning, his wisdom, his insight, his strategy, if you want, and Absalom too. So now take verse 23. This is why I hate this chapter break so much, because you're supposed to have that thought ringing in your ears as you watch Absalom reject Ahithophel's second plan. 
This is astounding. His words are like the word of God. They're so highly esteemed. In other words, Ahithophel's plans walk on water, even if he can't. You get it? Then we get moreover. Ahithophel says to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men. There's going to be three elements to this plan. He wants to hunt David down immediately. He wants to capitalize on the chaos and exhaustion that the beginning of this exile has created. And third, he intends only to kill David. You with me? Hunt David immediately, capitalize on chaos and exhaustion, and kill only David. Because if they can kill David... They can kill the shepherd. The sheep will return to the fold. This is Ahithophel's wisdom. It's really smart. Here's his permission request. Let me choose 12,000 men. I will arise and pursue David tonight, immediately. I will come upon him, upon him while he's weary, discouraged, might even throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that seem reasonable? And then I only strike down David. I only kill the king. And then I get to bring all the people back to you. They've been thinking about men and women a lot. As bride comes home to her husband, you seek the life of only one man, and then all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders. Of course it does. His plans are highly esteemed. So what the heck is Hushai going to do? It's an immediate plan. It's a reasoned plan. And it's probably going to work. And if David dies, his kingdom dies. Yes? Yahweh's kingdom dies. So Absalom's like, all right, well, let me jump on my other advisor. So they call in Hushai, the archite, and he wants to hear about this. So Hushai came to Absalom, and Absalom says to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says, and if not, you give me a plan. How awesome is this? Absalom, like all movie villains, disclosed the plan to the people who are rising against them. This divulgence is both hilarious and uber necessary because David would be potentially endangered by the wisdom and brilliance of this strategy. But Absalom spills the tea. And now Hushai knows all the plan, which does two things. One, it's always easier to poke holes in somebody else's plan than it is to invent your own. And two, he can send word to David that he needs to go find a well to hide in. He needs to go find a cave that nobody suspects. He needs to go do what mighty, valiant warriors do when they're not going to win. 
run, hide, prepare for the next round. So Absalom divulges the whole plan. And then Hushai gets to poke holes in it. So watch how it unfolds. Hushai gets to say to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. What? Notice how softly Hushai presents his case. He doesn't say Ahithophel is a fool. What does he say? This time, that qualifier wins all beauty in the heart of Absalom. Because he's not saying Ahithophel never comes up with wisdom. Of course he does. Everybody reveres him, almost like an oracle of God, he speaks. Eh, Hushai's saying, this time, not so much. Listen to verse 8. You know that your father and his men are mighty men. The emphasis in the Hebrew is on the word you. You know your father's great soldier. <laughs> and he's been poked like a bear. A mama bear who's been robbed of her cubs in the field. Got a question for you. Bear battles human who wins. <laughs> All right, I just want to be clear. Will it take long? Depends how hungry the bear is. You're welcome. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered, and that takes a lot of time, from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for a multitude. How many images... The use of analogies here so simplify the poking holes. Uh, let's think about bears. You don't want to fight a bear, especially when their cubs are missing. You need as many men as that seashore has sand. You see how gripping these images are? My counsel is we gather everybody so that when we come upon David somewhere, He's to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. This is like metaphor on metaphor on metaphor. If you know Lori Throop, it's like talking to her. I love you, sweetie. Metaphor on metaphor on metaphor. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and will drag it into the valley. Do cities get dragged by ropes into valleys? Do you see how he makes really complicated things sound super easy? Yeah. We're going to drag it into the valley so that not even a pebble is to be found there. Really? Is that even possible? 
Is that likely? How quickly could this be done? Well, I'm going to summarize Hushai's appeals as fourfold. He's making four simultaneous appeals. The first, David is experienced in battle. So if you're going to battle, probably haste is not helpful. He's a mighty man. Second, you better be cautious. Cautious. Because you can't go half-cocked. You need all your targets identified. You need all your plans intact. You cannot go and build this plane while you're flying it. You need to prepare. Because what happens if David wins the first skirmish? People will go, well, he was a true king anyway. I wasn't really on Absalom's side. Right? How wishy-washy are humans? I am totally loyal to you now. <laughs> right? How many of you, we like, we even in, in sports, we have a term for this, right? Bandwagon fans. And true fans hate and welcome all of you. And then we start establishing time. Well, I was a fan back when they stunk. I was, I, man, the Red Sox had, like my whole life, it was terrible. Have pity on me, despite having more championships in this century than the Yankees do. <laughs> it's all about how you frame it, right? So here's Hushai appealing to experience, to the wisdom of caution, there's one more you might not have caught, and it's vanity. Vanity. Go back and listen to Ahithophel's plan. Verse 1, let me, I will. Verse 2, I will. I will. Verse 3, I will. Convinced yet? In every one of Hushai's presentations, his appeal triggers the vanity of a son who takes his father's throne. Do you want Ahithophel to get all the glory? He's the one who's going to go get David. He's going to find him. He's going to kill him. He's going to bring back the bride. And you're going to sit here and do nothing? You know, you know, you can be the head of a great army of Israelites from Dan to Beersheba. Who's going to be like, no, nah, my ego doesn't need that. Like, this is all ego. You're taking your father's wives. You think this isn't ego? Hushai knows exactly how to upend Absalom's rebellion. Put Absalom at the center of it. Because David is a valiant man. Absalom's valiant? No, he's smirmy. Right? There's a new word for you. Very underutilized. You see the brilliant of Hushai's appeals. And the last one, the last one is 
Let's fight for eradication. It's not going to be enough to kill David and let everybody come back. Wipe out everyone who came before and everyone who's loyal to that guy. Sounds like a mob boss. You kill him, you kill his family, you kill his third cousin on his mother's side, you kill everybody. That's the appeal that Hushai gives the evil, maniacal, egomaniac. You get it? Hithophel gave a great plan, but he was at the center of it. Hushai gives a very terrible plan because it's ultimately filled with tons of inaction and delay, almost even indecision. But Absalom's in the center of it. Which one do you think he's going to go for? The, the revered oracle of God or the betrayer? Betraying the betrayer. It's awesome. Which way is this going to go? How is this going to unfold? Who are they going to pick? Build your suspense. I know you know the end of this story. But build your suspense. Be Absalom. Which one are you choosing? Be Hushai. Do you think it worked? Be Ahithophel. Why are they asking for a second opinion? The first opinion's the best opinion. Then, verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel say, the counsel of Hushai the archetype, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. What? It worked. Whoa, whoa. It worked. The checker player just beat the grand chess master because he appealed to the wimpiest piece on the board. And put him at the center of the strategy. You with me? Wow. How did that happen? Ahithophel's the oracle. And now he's second place? How could that happen? 14b. For Yahweh had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that Yahweh might bring what upon Absalom? Harm. Hushai does his job. Did Hushai do a good job? Right? Can you see the wisdom of the holes that he poked in Ahithophel's plan? David's better at war than you are. David's a mightier man. If you lose the first battle, then you're going to have to deal with all the politics of fear. So you better not do it now. The appearance of wisdom and everything that Hushai is saying. But at a fundamental level, the motive is loyalty to David, not the usurping son. Should Ahithophel's plan be overcome? Is there human wisdom that says Hushai's going to win favor before Absalom, before the elders of Israel, before the, all the people of Israel? 
Now, this is why you play the game. It doesn't matter what Vegas odds are given. This is why you play the game. Eli actually can win that Super Bowl. And I could be crying about it all these years later. How much more the stakes of the kingdom of God. How much more the convictions and promises of God. How much is at stake in these moments. Your salvation is tied to David's victory. Have you thought about that? These are easy stories to go back and understand on their own terms. But if we don't understand that the hidden sovereignty of God is still unfolding in the daily providences of God, we can be distressed beyond measure. But if we can trust that even in the darkness, the light will soon shine, there's comfort and hope for God's people. There's comfort and hope that every usurping of God's throne, every insurrection orchestrated by man, all our rebellions, all our plots, all our plans, all our evils, our deceptions, our bloodthirsts, God's plans will never be thwarted. Rebellion against God is folly and destruction. But verse 14 is a secret that we know. The people living here won't know it. So you're gonna have to tune in next week to find out how it unfolds. But that's like every week of our lives, isn't it? We know the promises of God. We know the warnings of God. We know the victories of God. We know the sins of man. How will it unfold this week? If you find yourself in darkness, take heart. The light shines. If you find yourself in the joyous celebrations of victories, understand that until he returns, those victories are temporary in our experience at times. But there's a day coming. Somebody say there's a day coming. There's a day coming where the unfolding plans of God will no longer be mysterious to us. There's a day coming when all comfort will be experienced, where all hope is proved true, where all rebellion is stamped out forever and ever and ever. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more death. Forever. No more lack of fulfillment. No more waiting. No more wondering, no more plotting, no more poking holes. Live your life with the certainty of God's victory. Yes? So here's the question. How do we apply this? We know the truth that hidden sovereignty is still reigning sovereignty. Yes? We know. We know. No, 
that even treacherous actions, even treacherous plots only seem to execute God's plans. So what should we forsake? Where am I in opposition to God's purposes for me? I know if you take that question seriously, it's surgical. Where am I in opposition to God? Where am I in opposition to his purposes for me? In other words, what should I forsake? If opposition to God is folly, what should I forsake? Sin, plan, expectation, relationship, what should I forsake? And then also, what should I embrace? What habit, what practice, what person, what relationship, what should I embrace? If opposition to God is folly and destructive, then where can you bring about peace and wisdom in our lives? His promises will all be fulfilled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you asking for your comfort, asking you to poke holes in our foolish plans, asking you to move of your spirit to bring hope to the hopeless, to bring mercy to the confounded, to bring freedom to the guilty. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit would guide and guard and direct us in what we should forsake and what we should embrace. Heavenly Father, give us the enabling power of your spirit to move and compel and propel our lives, that we would love as you love and live as you've commanded, and that we would grow in the grace of your son, Jesus Christ who paid the ultimate penalty for our treachery. Would you grow us in the humility and grace? And as the great Augustine once prayed, Lord, command whatever you will of us, but give what you command. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people agree.